All right. Can you uh, start us off with a word of prayer? Yes. I like that uh, sweatshirt. Oh, you like the sweatshirt? I saw Bill wearing his <laughs> on Sunday. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Father God, thank you so much for the blessing of Christ. Thank you for the hope and the joy and the peace that he brings to us, even in the midst of pain, chaos, and uncertainty. Thank you, Father, that we can remain stable upon the rock which never moves, which is Christ. Help us now in this podcast to serve you above all else, to speak your word, your truth, Father, that we might be reflections of your glory, that we might be image bearers of your name, that we might help your people, that we might strengthen your church, that we might proclaim your gospel, for it's all about you, it's all from you, it's all for you, it's all to you. Help us now to honor you in all that is said, all that is thought, and all that is done. For the glory of your great name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is Truth Talks. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm your host, Buddy Boone. It's been so long since you've heard that, almost a month. And uh, I attribute that all to the scheduling of us uh, being on a tri-weekly uh, podcast. We're going to try weekly to record, <laughs> and that's what it came down to. We have been trying. We've been trying. Every we, week. We definitely have been trying hard to do it, and uh, it fell on today. Like, mm-hmm. today was the day that the Lord has ordained for us to <laughs> record our next podcast. I, don't blame me. Uh, but thank you all for listening, obviously. And uh, with me today is the pastor of Bellcroft Bible Church. His name is Pastor White. How you doing? Sorry. Nope. His name is not Pastor White. It's Pastor Matt White. How you doing today, sir? Uh, you can call me whatever you want, brother. I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing great. Yeah, I, I got uh, PTSD from another Pastor White. So That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to help rectify that. I, I appreciate that. I need yeah. it. I need it so much. And, uh, well, uh, biblical counseling helps. Yes. Yes, <laughs> so, it does. Uh, we, the last time we spoke, it was, we were kind of revving up and, and false teachers was kind of like our, our topic because yeah. we were coming right out of Mark 12. And now we are in an what a, a part that I have been waiting for, patiently waiting for a while. And uh, this part of Mark, this part of the, the word of God, the wonderful word of God, <laughs> uh, Mark 13. Yes. And uh, I, I've, I've told you many times, I appreciate so much that you started us off with just an introduction of eschatology yes, and how, how wonderful that is and how, how helpful that is. I think that one of the things that I want to kind of do is kind of walk through that. Yeah. But before you do that, or probably during uh, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. one thing that I have a question about is Uh-oh. this. I have not heard you mention the tribulation. Oh, you have. You just must have forgotten. Maybe. Yeah. I, I'm excited about it, so I don't hear yeah. everything. Yeah. I probably hear parts of it. But oh, yeah. the yeah, tribulation, you- like... Because of course, uh, one of the thing that one of the things that people will say and ask me yeah. is like, well, well, what about your pastor? Is he post trib? Is he pre trib? Is he, you know, uh, yeah. you know, like so that yeah. those terms kind of defining those terms and giving mm-hmm. an understanding, but you know, yeah, because I, I don't know. I'm still in the midst of this. I'm still yep, forming forming my theology yep. and you know, yep. uh, cementing what I believe. So 
Yeah, you know, in that in that uh, classification, if you will, of those terms, uh, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all of these different um, classifications of where someone's theology might land. I haven't I haven't given that I haven't given those terms or classifications yet. Mm-hmm. I've given other ones. Um, yeah, we've looked at the millennial uh, classification. We've looked at the hermeneutical classification. Um, but we haven't looked at uh, uh, tribulational classification yet. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason is because I've given so many terms already on the front end and so many categories. I don't want to confuse people because it's confusing enough, yeah. right? Because of all these things that are somewhat extra biblical classifications, categories that you know you're not going to find these terms in the Bible, but they're going to be fostered upon us by people who write about the Bible, and so you got to kind of be conversant with them. But if you're not careful, you can get so many terms out there that it's just unhelpful, Yeah, right? It just becomes white noise, mm-hmm. and I haven't wanted it to be that, and so I've gone purposely very slow and picked the terms that I believe are obviously more important and uh, and really need to be given out and defined on the front end, mm-hmm. and so that's why we've done that. But as far as the tribulation, actually... Much of what I talked about on Sunday was all tribulational. It'll be very much so this Sunday as we're in Revelation uh, quite a bit this Sunday in light of Mark 13. But yeah, but I, I, you're right. I have not walked through that classification of pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all of that. Yeah, so in that sense, yeah, you're right. I haven't brought that up purposely. Mm-hmm. But I have talked about tribulation. And matter of fact, uh, in, in light of uh, Sunday's message where I actually used PowerPoint and the entire church almost uh, came unglued. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened with that. I, I was, I was, that is why I didn't hear the, the tribulation talk because yeah. I was still in shock. Yes. From that. You might have mentioned it on Sunday and yeah. I was just in yeah. shock. You and everybody else. Yeah. And here's the thing. I actually uh, joke uh, a fellow friend of ours uh, yeah. named Eki Tepsaporncha yes. about his use of PowerPoints and yes. he defends it to the day. And it's, yeah. it, it's true. Yeah. He just uses it for scripture. Yeah. For it's people to read the scripture. It's, a, it's his style. Yeah. It's a but, stylistic thing. Yeah. But yeah, I, that, but here's the thing though. The, <laughs> You never use PowerPoint. No. But that was extra helpful. I Absolutely. Was, I, was, I was hoping it would stay up there long enough that I could, you know, yeah. just copy it, which it did. Yeah. But, yeah. That was the purpose. Yeah. I never use it unless I feel like I need it. Or a handout. Like, you never use handouts no, either. I don't think I need it. This could have been a handout. Yes, but, it could have. But, you know, we it wasn't. No. So, But yeah. it was fine. I'm not against it, it. I'm not against it. I just don't feel like I need it to be clear. Right. But if I need it to be clear, I'll use it. And other guys feel like they need it to be clear. And so if they if that helps them to be clear, by all means, use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't feel that need and don't feel like it. Legitimately, I don't feel like I need that. You know, Everybody tells me all the time that's probably the one characteristic of my sermon that's consistent. It's clear. Yeah. It's crystal clear. And I never use PowerPoint. So mm-hmm. you don't need it to be clear other than when you're dealing with something complex like eschatology a powerpoint slide of an outline and things like that is helpful because you're again you're dealing with so many different categories and passages of scripture it's hard to write all that down Mm -hmm. and i want our people to write it down i want them to have it for notes to reflect so that's why i put up those two different slides of those outlines so in light of that one of the things that uh, was clear on sunday was um Mark 13 is really, and I'm, I'm going to re-clarify re-clar- this again this Sunday, is in many ways an outline 
of the tribulation. That's what it is. That's you're going to see that emphatically this Sunday as you as I show you verse by verse how clearly Mark 13 correlates with Revelation. And you're going to see this like it's going to be mind-blowing. Okay. And what Christ is doing in Mark 13 is he's outlining the early part of the tribulation, the mid part of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation. That's really what the how Mark 13 really lines out. And that's why I outlined it shortly before he comes, right before he comes, when he comes, which, which is the tribulation. Shortly before he comes, the first three years, in the middle of when it gets really bad, right before he comes, the last three years, and then right as he comes, which is as he's coming through the clouds, that's the final moment. And that's literally how the body of Mark 13 outlines. And that's what's so helpful about what Christ teaches is he literally, in Mark, it's an overview. In Matthew, it's two chapters. It's a hundred verses. So he gives far more extensive information that we don't get in Luke and Matthew, or in Mark. In Mark and Luke, we tend to get more of an outline. In Luke, we get a little bit more in an area that Matthew and Mark don't give us. But um, with Matthew, it's more extensive. It's, it's the, it's the, the um, most extended version of the lecture. But in Mark, it's really concise, and it's an outline. That's what we have, which is really helpful. So, yeah, and so that's, yeah, that was much of what, we did an overview, obviously, but this Sunday we'll go through, and it'll all be, it'll all be everything that's in verses 8, or verses 5 to 13 in Mark 13 is really the beginning, the first three years of the tribulation. That's what it is. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's good. I, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Now, I will say, um, as far as the um, uh, the actual types of eschatology, mm-hmm. um, one of the uh, one of the things that I, I, I really uh, appreciated about the different types is the fact that uh, one, there are eight of them, and uh, seven of them, and you said that there were three more that you uh, didn't mention mm-hmm. that you had uh, ten of them. But you kind of narrowed it down to seven. Yeah, the dangers. Which one are which one are we on? The dangers in this passage studying eschatology. Yes. 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 The seven dangers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yep. Yep. Sensational eschatology. Yep. yep. Um, superficial eschatology. Yep. Uh, divisive eschatology. Yep. Imbalanced eschatology. Yep. Disconnected eschatology. Yep. Realized or overrealized eschatology. And then arrogant eschatology. Yep. You said that there were three more. Yep. That you kind of paired, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. I have to go back and look at my notes to figure out what those were. I had 10 on my original list. Mm-hmm. And I think what I did was, um, if I remember correctly, I kind of pulled a couple of them together so that I weren't, wasn't too redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I could go back in my list. I can't think of it off the top of my head because okay. that's been so many weeks ago. But I, I do remember those seven and pared it down to the to those seven, and I think I'm confident I could come up with more. But those are those are common fallacies, dangers, pitfalls that we fall into. We there's always dangers when you study theology. Obviously, the Bible even warns us of that, and so we have to we have to be careful. But when we're dealing with eschatology, it's almost as if the the potholes are bigger and easier to fall into because there's so much hearsay, fallacy, mm-hmm. um, sensationalism surrounding eschatology. If you're not careful, you quickly go into some 
uh, signs-driven, man-centered, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, um, news-driven, cultural-driven eschatology. And you don't want that. You want a biblical a biblically driven eschatology, not a culturally right. driven. So, yeah, so that's kind of what that was to set the stage right in the beginning of any time you study eschatology. You really, you really, I mean, it's that way for all theology. It's We should always go into our study of theology with our antenna up, with our heart checked, with our feet um, slowed down so that we don't rush in and assume things that we shouldn't assume and define things we shouldn't define, and uh, recharacterize God in a way that's made after man and not after himself. And that's, we do that all the time. We owe, I mean, again, theology is the most important thing about you, and yet it's one of the areas of life that is often marked by whimsical words and just flippancy. And it's like, no, if you're going to handle, I mean, that's why it was called, theology was called the queen of the sciences. It was the, it was the premier of all the sciences that man was involved in studies. Theology was the ultimate one throughout the years of the Enlightenment where, where these sciences, these studies, whether it was the study of man, the, the study of the cosmos, the study of business, whatever, the study of literature. You had all these different forms of study that man would go into and it was always theology was called the queen of the sciences because it's the study of God. And so it, 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 there's nothing greater than that, but there's also nothing more dangerous than that because if you get that wrong, not only is that blasphemous, but it's also damnable because if you get a wrong view of God, which leads you then obviously to a wrong view of the gospel, which ultimately leads you to a wrong destination where you think you're going to heaven and obviously you're going to hell. So so you got to get it right. And the only way to get it right is to submit yourself to Scripture and to be humble and teachable by the Word, which most people aren't. Most people are not that, especially in the area of eschatology. Everybody's got their preconceived ideas of this or that, rather than just letting the Word speak. And a lot of eschatological positions are not driven by Scripture. They're driven by a theological framework and they bring a theological framework to the scriptures that says, well, I have to read the scripture this way. And if I read it this way, it leads me to this conclusion. Well, that's a, that's a um, man-centered way of, of reading scripture, rather than letting the scripture speak for scripture's self, letting the scripture say what the scripture says, not me putting an artificial lens over it, right? And it's like if I take a red lens and I look at scripture, it all looks red. Mm-hmm. right, or for a blue lens. There should be no lens over Scripture. Scripture is its own lens. It must speak for itself, and we must, we must seek and search the Scriptures to let it say what it needs to say. And that's a teachable spirit, but that's, that's sadly not all that common anymore. And uh, we bring preconceived ideas and notions to the text as it pertains to these preconceived theological perspectives. So again, that's a, that's a that's another danger that we always deal with in in all theologies, but especially eschatology. Hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, the the big thing, you, the first danger was yeah. one that, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I've definitely struggled with. Oh yeah, 
um, still do in some cases because, yep. you know, we all do. the wars and rumors of wars and, yep. you know, um, the seasons and how bad storms are. And, yep. you know, we hear it all the time. And, yep. you know, it's it's you know, it doesn't affect me like, you know, it may affect people like when you say the word climate change. Cause yeah. The climate change is four times a year from yeah. what I've seen. Yes. But, you know, it's kind of like that whole like. You know, I saw, oh, well, I see that and I saw that. And, Everything's uh, a sign. Yeah. And I actually have a uh, a guy that I'm, you know, very uh, familiar with. I would say that I can't necessarily call him a friend, mm-hmm. um, but we have been, you know, colleagues at one point. Mm-hmm. He actually has an entire page on Instagram committed to this. He wrote a book a few years ago that uh, where he was talking about the monarch dying. Mm-hmm. And when Queen Elizabeth died uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, it was like for him, like you see, this is exactly this is that seven one of the seven kingdoms mm-hmm. uh, that are being uh, you know that that are coming down or you know mm-hmm. I, I don't remember everything that he was talking about because mm-hmm. uh, I decided to treat it as as First Timothy uh, four seven the first part of that verse mm-hmm. <laughs> you know just you know not listening to the wives' tales yep um, but the, that is kind of like that sensational eschatology is totally. what I've seen. Uh, the yep. most uh, from that. Um, I remember a few decades ago now, uh, there were uh, a bunch of billboards up. Yep. And uh, this particular pastor had put billboards up in this particular town yep. saying that Jesus was coming back on this day and you need to sell everything that you have and come and join me. Yeah. Um, because he was reading the tea leaves, basically That's trying it. to figure out when that was Um, and people sold their homes, they sold their businesses, they sold everything that they had and sounds similar to uh, a group of people that were in Guyana that drank some Kool-Aid. So, you know, when you say that that is the case, um, one thing, two things that I kind of got out of this and this is the, this is, this is kind of like my application that, that, you know, you were, you were saying one thing is looking to the scriptures, one thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you put on the rose colored glasses, you know, you when you look at the rose colored glasses, then you look at the uh, scripture, the, the word sin turns into mistake mm-hmm. versus it being sin and God's wrath and exactly. how much of a wretch we are. But the other thing is um, it makes me want to get out of the world that has all of these issues and all of these problems yep. um, that are, you know, affecting us in certain ways and uh, distractions. Yep. That's the biggest thing that, that I have really, um, have really, it's been really messing with me, I would say. Yeah. Um, wasting time is the biggest thing that has kind of like been on my brain about this and eschatology, you know, studying it and us being in the scriptures about it and, you know, all the terms that go with it. It's one of those like, man, like I'm really wasting time right now. Yep. Like I'm wasting time doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing. I yep. should be in the scriptures. I should be teaching my children. Yep. I should be, you know, discipling my wife. Like that's the 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 more important thing mm-hmm. uh, than you know listening to ungodly myths or or, or old wives tales. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like my application point. You know, my mm-hmm. big application point there. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Sensational eschatology is one of the dangers of it. Is it it does it takes you away from scripture, mm-hmm. not deeper into scripture, because the focus doesn't doesn't become anymore what scripture says it becomes what is happening in society mm-hmm. right it becomes about monarchs and presidents and governments mm-hmm. and 
natural disasters and wars and all these things, which obviously those things are real and have a place, and we should have some semblance of knowledge of what's going on. But what happens is they become the primary, and Scripture becomes the secondary. Mm-hmm. That's how that works. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it sensational. It's sensational because you're looking at the shiny object, which is the cultural event, mm-hmm. and then you turn and say, see, that's that's what this is talking about, yeah. versus holding up Scripture and understanding what's happening in Scripture historically, grammatically, contextually, and saying, let's understand this, and then let's kind of evaluate that. Well, if I understand this, i.e. Scripture, then I already know, yeah, that's not what this is talking about. That's not this. That This, i.e. the cultural event, whatever that may be, whether it's environmental, governmental, or personal, that very will, that very likely will be a foreshadowing. It will very likely be a forepointing, a portent, if you will, of what's to come. And that happens throughout history all the time. And we see that in the scriptures, where you see these events that look like a fulfillment of scripture, but they're not. It's a portent, meaning a foreshadowing. It's kind of laying the groundwork saying, uh-huh, this isn't it in its fulfillment, but this it's going to be like this. Mm-hmm. And it's just God's grace saying, wake up, wake up. Yeah, this isn't it in its entirety, but it's going to be like this. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time in Scripture, and even in our culture today, when we see things, when we see world leaders, when we see governments, when we see even personal tragedies, right? It's like the uh, Tower of Siloam, right, that falls down and people die, or when uh, Pilate goes in and slaughters the Jews, and what was the question? You know, they they went and asked Jesus about the unrighteous acts done to innocent people, and what was his response? Hey, unless you repent, these same things will happen to you. Mm. And it, it was just like, no, no, don't look at those as, as uh, from the lens of victimhood. Mm-hmm. Look at those through the lens of, unless I repent, I will likewise perish, right? And it's a portent of what's to come. We're all going to die mm-hmm. and stand before God. So, so, so oftentimes, that's the way we're to view these things in our cultural world as foreshadowings and reminding us of, yeah, judgment is coming, mm-hmm. and there is a day of the Lord that the Scripture talks of. This is not it, but when it comes, it's going to come with the full fury, and I better be ready. Sensational es- eschatology doesn't do that. Sensational eschatology tries to nail it down and say, and it's all about saying, see, here it is, here it is, here it is. Mm-hmm. And it becomes an emotional plea rather than a than a biblical plea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, this is, yeah, it's all fascinating to me, you yeah. know, because uh, of the whole thing uh, being about the end times and what's coming up. But you're right. It's it definitely will make me look outside of the Bible versus looking at what Scripture yeah. actually says. And here I'm going to show you how I'm guilty of that because this is one of the questions that I wrote down. Yeah. This is how I am. So um, you were talking about the categories of uh, or three major categories of millennialism, uh, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Um, one thing that you uh, – Talk, uh, one person you talked about was Daniel Whitby. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentioned the seven mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that? Kind of help me understand what yeah. that is, because what I thought it was was or is uh, what uh, Bethel Church in Reading is kind of yeah. looking at. And very similar. Okay. Yeah, it was foundational to that. Actually, okay. that's what it is. The seven kingdoms and 
the seven mountains and and it's it's these seven places of authority mm-hmm. right that the that the church is supposed to take over is to rule over and when it does this is this is a seedbed to to postmillennialism mm-hmm. and so as the church takes over these specific places of authority and begins to infiltrate that with truth then that's what turns the world around i.e. turns the world upside down so that the world then becomes a better place. And, and it's through that, the world becoming a better place as the truth starts to infiltrate all these areas of authority and influence in and over the world, then that's what ushers Christ back. Mm-hmm. And it's as if, if you rightfully understand it and how it's laid out, it really is as if the Lord, when he returns, his kingdom is already set up because the, the world is it's happening and in their minds, the way it would be described, and I don't want to misrepresent them, but in their minds, they would say the gospel's going out and it's changing the world and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's happening. The kingdom of God is spreading, and it's as if Christ comes back to his kingdom. It's already set up for him, and he comes back and then just just kind of takes over. But it's already happening. His kingdom is kind of set up by us. Obviously, the scripture doesn't say that. Not at all. He comes back to a disaster and literally annihilates the world by the word of his mouth and remakes it and literally reset it reestablishes his kingdom himself from literally from the Mount of Olives when his feet hit it and it splits and even the whole geography of the area changes and the whole world is changed. And so uh, he establishes his kingdom and it's all driven by him. And it's not driven by us because obviously the world is is a mess and it will continue to escalate in a mess as Second Timothy three says so clearly, and so um, yeah, but that's where that comes from. And that he was a big uh, um, found, he was foundational in in starting that mindset, which postmillennialism is founded upon on many levels. Okay. Yeah, and, and charismatic, a lot of charismatic doctrine like Bethel and whatnot has jumped on that and carries that as well. That's yeah. very common. Yeah, you mentioned it, and this was my understanding coming from the church that I came from. Yep. Um, they were really big on missions and, yep. you know, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, like that. You had yep. to know that, yep. you know, oh, you got to back up to verse 18 and, you know, read the whole section and, you know, yep. all these things. But one of the things that was said very frequently, and I remember it like it was yesterday, was we have to go and spread the gospel because we want to usher in or That's hurry it. up. And everybody has to know the gospel first. Everybody has to hear the gospel first. And that's when Christ will come back. So if we get busy yeah. going and... We'll trigger it. Yeah, we're, we're going to be the ones to trigger it. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. The trigger's already set. The day's already set for his return. Mm-hmm. The Bible, again, makes that clear. Mm-hmm. And it's not based upon us necessarily triggering that. It's based upon... Again, Psalm 110, what the Father says to the Son, now's the time, go. He dispatches Christ from heaven when he says, it's time, go. Go now and put all of, and I, if when you go, God says, I will put all of your enemies under your feet. Mm-hmm. And that's what he does. Obviously, we can see that correlates to Revelation when he opens the seals, and that's what begins the judgment of which we're reading about in Mark 13. So, um, yeah, so, but that's a post-millennial view that, again, it's a very popular view today. It went out of popularity for a long time because of World War One, the mm. the war that was to end all wars, mm. right? And obviously, 
what, 20 years later, you know, a little over 20 years, the next war came. So the war that ended all wars didn't last very long. And, and that really, um, really crushed the post-millennial perspective that was big before World War I because historically people, you know, got it and they're just like, yeah, the world is definitely not escalating to a higher level of, of godliness and, and, uh, uh, morality for sure. And obviously we, you couldn't say that now, but for, but for numerous reasons that I'm not even a hundred percent sure that I fully even understand post-millennialism is gaining a, 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 a pretty large following. I believe it's because there's some celebrity guys of uh, podcasters and different, different pastors who are kind of big name guys that they're post-millennial. And so you know how that works. If you're a post-millennial guy and you're a big name guy, then a lot of your people who follow you, I believe there's a lot of it's driven more by charismatic uh, personalities than mm-hmm. it is theological convictions, because mm-hmm. that's the way it is, Calvinism or whatever it is, whatever your guy believes, you kind of follow that mm-hmm. more because that guy believes it, not because it's a core conviction, because I, I struggle, I really struggle to understand the basis for a post-millennial view um, I can understand an amillennial view far more clear. I don't agree with it. I think it's not biblical, but I can see where they're coming from, mm-hmm. and I can even see their arguments that they give exegetically from Scripture. Postmillennial view just just blows my mind because the Bible says otherwise. The Bible is very clear. The Bible that says emphatically it's going to get worse and worse. And um, including Mark 13. I mean, you read the text. Jesus is not talking about it getting better, right? Whether you take it from an already happened or is happening now, an inter-advent view, or if you take this even as a complete futuristic view, no matter which way you go, it's pretty obvious that, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, the world's going to wax on worse and worse, and people are going to continue to be deceived and deceiving themselves. And so the Bible is pretty clear about that. That's why I don't understand why why uh, there's so much confusion in that area. But there is, and, yeah. and that's part of the complexities of eschatology in our world. And for the benefit of the people that are listening, I'm going to kind of read my notes, and you yeah. can kind of correct me where yeah. I need to be corrected. Um, amillennial, amillennialism uh, is the, the de- to define it or to explain it. Yep. There will not be a future literal 1,000-year uh, reign of Christ on the earth. Yep. So there's no 1,000 years. And they began with the ascension of Christ and ends with his return. Yep. Satan is bound now. Christ is ruling now, and Satan is bound. Tribulate. This is what I have. Yep. Tribulation is now, even though Christ is ruling now. Yep. After Jesus returns, then comes judgment. Um, a preterist and a historist view. And yep. I probably got to read what a preterist and a historist is as well. Yep. But you, Jesus is Christ is ruling now. That part. Yes. What is so? Amillennial, amillennialism is a is a uh, uh, what would be the right title. It's a polemical term. It's it's a reactionary term. So that's one of the confusing things about it. It's a reactionary term to what is known as premillennialism. So amillennialism says believes there's absolutely no literal 1000 year literal kingdom to come. Mm-hmm. Okay? This is this is the issue. Um Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 7 uses the term 1000 years 
like seven times in seven verses, mm-hmm. six or seven times. And um, so I would take that to be a literal 1,000-year reign, that Christ is coming back and he's going to establish his kingdom, mm-hmm. which is the Davidic kingdom that was promised to Israel all the way back to Second Samuel chapter 7, when, when God himself promised to David that there would be a king who would sit on his throne forever, right, and, and promise. That's called the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise uh, made to David and, uh, by extension, Israel. And obviously we know who that king is, and that's Christ. And, and so the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic throne was never set up, right? It was never fully established. Now, amillennialism would say, no, it is. It's established in heaven. Christ is seated on David's throne now, and he's ruling right now from heaven. And therefore, they do believe in a millennium. They just believe it's now. Everything that's mm-hmm. happening now is Christ reigning from heaven in his millennial reign. Well, if that's the case, one, uh, he's not a very good king because it's a mess. Chaos. Chaos. Furthermore, that doesn't line up with Scripture, because if you take all the Old Testament passages that speak of the millennium, that's not what you see, because the Old Testament was clear. When the, the king, the Davidic king, comes and reigns, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The child will play next to the cobra hole. Like, there will not be chaos. There won't even be death. Mm-hmm. If a child dies at 100 years old, that will be, that will be an anomaly and that person will be known to be a severely wicked person mm. because death will death will almost not yet not entirely but almost be vanquished because his kingdom will be so pure and it will be so uh, uh, law abiding. There will be so much morality during his reign that that's what you'll have even in the animal kingdom. So you've got the cobra playing with the with the baby. You got the lion laying and eating grass like the lamb. I mean. Everything is transformed, right? Unlike it is now. So it's like, wait a minute. If he's in his millennial kingdom, this just doesn't add up, right? Now, hmm. you step back and you say, furthermore, the, there's no reason for us to spiritualize. Spiritualize meaning change what the Bible predicted to be an earthly reign and now change it into a heavenly reign. Right. Like, why would we do that? Right. Scripture doesn't do that, mm-hmm. right? When he said, you're going to have a king sit on your throne, right? David wasn't thinking a heavenly throne. He was thinking a literal throne here on earth from Jerusalem, of which is the capital of the people of God, i.e. Israel. So when you start looking at all that, and then you look at an amillennial view, which takes everything, turns it on its head, spiritualizes it, make it makes it all about heavenly things rather than earthly things, then you start, that's the struggle. So they believe in a millennium, they just believe it's now. They just, they believe it's a millennial reign that just continues in an indefinite period of time until God, until Christ returns, and that begins the eternal state, right? And so again, that's, that's how they view that. The other thing is they believe the Olivet Discourse is already fulfilled or partially fulfilled, either fully fulfilled or partially de- fulfilled, depending on what kind of preterist you are. And so um, um, that's where that comes from, and that's what so ah uh, the ah uh, the a in in the millennial category negates millennium. So millennium literally means a thousand years, and when you put the the alpha, when you put the a in front of it, it's a it's a way of negating it. It's a negation. It's like crossing it out. Like anti. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So whenever you have that in in the language, it's in it just wipes it out and says no millennium. So mm. an ah millennial position just says I don't believe in a literal millennium. Right. Right, and so a premillennial position 
It believes in a literal millennium. It believes in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ from earth in Jerusalem, of which the Bible says over and over and over and over again that Christ will return to the Mount of Olives. (laughs) His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. I mean, it's pretty clear what the Bible says over and over again. And he will reign a 1,000 years, as it says in Revelation uh, six, seven times, very clearly right there. And so... um, so premillennial sees Christ returns before the millennium. So amillennial says there is no millennium. Christ is going to return when he returns, and that's it. Premillennial position says no, Christ is going to return, and when he returns, then he establishes his 1,000-year reign, which the Bible talks of, of which Israel was promised, and he will reign from Israel, from Jerusalem. He will establish his kingdom right there. He will sit on his throne, and he will rule the world. And by, and by doing so, he will put all of his enemies under his feet, and it's during that time that his millennial promises to the nation of Israel are fulfilled, and peace is brought, and all the people are brought back to the land. All the nations come to Israel. They worship at Israel. They see the blessing of Israel, of which the, the Old Testament was replete with these promises. All of that is fulfilled during that 1,000-year year reign. And a premillennial position says, yes, Christ will return and establish his kingdom before. So he's, he comes back before. That's why it's premillennial. And then he goes in, that ushers in his thousand-year reign. That's what a a post-millennial position is post-after. So they're very similar, very similar to an amillennial position in that they see the millennium. It depends on which post-millennial person you talk to, but it happens. They see Christ returning after the millennium. So that's where they see us ushering in the millennium, so to speak, where we establish it. And it's kind of, we're in the millennium now, we're working towards it, and it's getting better as the gospel goes mm. forward. And then Christ comes back after, gotcha. right? And which, if you understand the amillennial position, it's very similar. Mm-hmm. They're very similar. They're, they're, it's, it's almost at times semantics between mm. the two, because an amillennialist, a true amillennialist, believes in the millennium. He just believes it's happening now spiritually. Post-millennial person believes it's happening, most of them, not all of them believe it's happening now, but they believe it's also it's spiritual and physical. So that's kind of the differentiation, and then and then it gets better and better, and then Christ returns, and and then it goes from there. So does that make sense? Yes, and I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna summarize it just to show that it yep. does make sense. Good. All right. So uh, no man knows the day or the hour. Only the Father. The Father will look at Jesus, who's seated on his right hand right now. Yep. And say, "Go, go." And then he, Christ will come through the clouds. Yep. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. It'll yep. split. Yep. And then he'll reign, put all of his in, all of his enemies under his feet. Yep. And he'll reign on earth for a thousand years. Yep. Okay. Where will we be? We'll be reigning with him. The church will be will return with him. We will return in the clouds with him. The church will. So wait a minute. Yeah. So before he came back, okay, so it was a rapture. Yep. Yep. Judgment. And then yep. we for come the back. church. Yeah, that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're in heaven with him. That's all that is happening while the tribulation is happening on earth. And then if you read when you read Revelation nineteen and twenty, we come back with him. We rule and reign with him during that time. Yeah, that's that's what's going on. 
I feel like I have this big puzzle in my head and now I'm getting like the pieces. pieces. Yeah. But it's the right pieces now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's and that's the way you want to get it. You want to get it slowly. You don't mm-hmm. want to I don't want to give you, you know, some fancy dancy chart and then it just uh, you need to see it as we go through scripture and you need to let it come together through yeah. expositional preaching and that's what yeah. we're doing that's why I'm in no hurry yeah give me a piece a piece of the, of the puzzle at a time chart, a little bit at a time and, and I'll get it because now it's all kind of I'm kind of understanding like well, how this goes and here's here's what you want that doesn't that doesn't um, that honestly rarely happens but it needs to happen and I mean I don't mean that negatively on others but it's just the facts most guys go too fast preaching mm-hmm. this and teaching this there is so much Old Testament. Actually, the greatest place to go to for getting sound eschatology is the Old Testament. Daniel, right? No, there's Daniel, Zephaniah, okay. Zechariah. Okay. I mean, there's just the whole Testament. Okay. Psalms, they all point in this direction. Mm-hmm. But because most people don't understand their Old Testament, they don't they, they struggle in their eschatology, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you have a New Testament priority view, which is what most preterists and uh, millennialists have, then you're going to reinterpret the the old in light of the new, mm-hmm. right? And versus the other way around and let the old speak for itself and see the new flowing out of the old and building upon it in progressive revelation. And so so as we go through this, even this Sunday, and you'll start to see what I was teaching you last Sunday and see so much of that flowing out of the Old Testament, it starts to open your eyes big mm-hmm. time, and you start to realize, oh, okay, this is what he's been talking about from mm-hmm. the beginning. This is what Daniel has, was talking about. This is what Zechariah, Zechariah 14 literally says, they will see him coming in the clouds, they will mourn, that's Israel, they will mourn and repent, and he will come back, and his feet will hit the ground, and Isaiah 53 is what they're saying when they see him coming through the clouds, mm-hmm. and they're mourning and repenting, and that's when all of Israel will be saved, what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, 11, it's like all of this, it starts to come together, and you're just like, oh, wow, this is this is so clear. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is, right? There's still, obviously, some things that are just hard to understand and unanswered, but the puzzle pieces are clear, and they start to come together. Right. This is, yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very uh, thankful for uh, all of this. Now, when... When we, all right, so I have, I have a couple of books that I've been taking notes in, so um, I'm, I'm going back and forth. Okay, so you, okay, so let's move next to when you actually start to now preach Mark 13. Yep. Um, okay, we were talking about the different temples, so there was Solomon's temple. Yep. And then there's Herod's temple, yep. and then there's Herod's temple number two. Well, there's Zerubbabel's, Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel's temple? Yeah, that's the second one. Okay, you know, um, I missed one. Yeah, Solomon's temple obviously was, was what King Solomon built, what David wanted to build, but God said, no, you're a man of blood, man of war, so your son will build it. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's the temple we see um, Solomon built. And, and then obviously that temple was decimated and destroyed by the Babylonians. So that temple was around for about 400 years. And, um, and then uh, because of Israel's uh, wickedness, Israel was taken into captivity in 722 by the Assyrians. And then obviously uh, Judah, who was obviously 
um, capitalized there in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That was where the, the tribe of Judah and Israel, the ten tribes, were already decimated and sent to the four corners of the, of the globe. But then Judah did not, did not follow the Lord and did not f- uh, learn their lesson from the example of, of their sister Israel, and they continued. Uh, um, so it was like 100 years later, 100, 100, about 150 years later, God says, all right, you're continuing in your wickedness, your rebellion. Now he sends in the Babylonians, and um, they decimate Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, um, and they send uh, uh, Israel, i.e. Judah, into captivity for 70 years, which God predicted would happen and said would happen. Uh, because they were failing to give him his Sabbaths. So um, that's what the 70 years ultimately correlate to, and all the Sabbaths that they had not given to the Lord. And so they go into this 70-year captivity, but God had already predicted that he was going to raise up Cyrus, even calls him and describes him very clearly. 150 years before he's even born, he he says, I'm going to bring in this this man. He's going to be Persian. He's going to bring him in, and he's going to release the the people of Israel, so they can go back and and re reestablish themselves. And so, after the seven years of exile, um, he does. King of Persia actually himself releases the people and commissions them to go rebuild their temple. Mm-hmm. He even even finances it mm-hmm. and says, "I'll help you. I even send some army people to go, some military people to help escort you as you're carrying the stuff back to Jerusalem." And so that's what starts it. And that's and that's why it's called Zerubbabel's temple because. Ezra and Zerubbabel were kind of the main leaders who were helping reestablish now uh, the Israelites who were coming post-exile out of Babylon. They were coming back to Jerusalem, and they kind of helped establish the king, the the um, the temple, right? And then Nehemiah comes after them, and they start to build the walls around it, gotcha. right? And so, but the Zerubbabel's temple was so small in comparison to Solomon's temple that there was still a generation that went into exile and was still alive coming out, which is phenomenal to think about. So they would have been pretty old. But they had seen Solomon's temple, and then they come back post-exilic and come back to Jerusalem, and they see the foundation stones that are being laid for Zerubbabel's temple, and they wail and weep because it's, it's a shadow. It's, it's tiny compared to what Solomon's temple was, but it was a start. And um, so... That temple's built, and that's kind of where the Bible ends. That's kind of where, you know, because you, you have them come back, and then you have Nehemiah who's building the wall, and really Nehemiah and Malachi, like, that's the end, mm-hmm. right? Then that ushers us into the 400 silent years. So um, what happens is Herod comes along, who's Idumean. He's not even, you know, fully, he's not even fully Jewish. Go ahead. Can I stop you just one yeah. second? Because I think that you mentioned uh, the presence of God leaving the temple. Yeah. Was yeah, it, yeah. which one was that? Yeah, that was Solomon's temple. That was Solomon's temple. Yep. Yep. So the presence of God left the temple because of the sin of the people. Yes. Yep. Okay. And you can read about that in Ezekiel. Okay. Yeah. I think starting in chapter 11, where it's, it's this very dramatic, it's actually a very, I, I believe it's one of the saddest passages in the Old Testament mm-hmm. in that era. And if you know the contextual, the era of time that's going on, because you know, the judgment of God is coming upon his people and he's removing his glory from the temple, mm-hmm. right? And where he's done with it. And and it, it goes out in phases in Ezekiel's prophecy. Mm. And it's very sad 
right, as, as Ezekiel's watching the glory of God vacate the holy of holies, right, and it pauses, and then it goes a little bit further, and it pauses, and Ezekiel's mourning because he knows what that means, that mm-hmm. God has done with his people, and obviously in that time he was, and not completely in the sense of universally forever, but in that moment of judgment for sure, because that's what his people uh, rightfully deserved and what he promised he would do Mm -hmm. if they didn't, all the way back in the uh, Pentateuch. If you don't follow my word, this is what I'm going to do. So, uh, yeah. Did did the glory of God come back to Zerubbabel's temple? You know, it it doesn't say ever definitively. Okay, and that's a that's a question that that's a question that I've always had in the sense of the uh, the Shekinah glory. We don't see that mm-hmm. in Zerubbabel's that I can recall. And and again, if some, I I haven't been able to find that. Just like I don't see it in in Herod's temple, right? And yet right, and right. and yet and yet, you know, in Herod's temple specifically, right? Christ. Reveres the temple as the place of worship, right? He cleanses the temple as, and even says, "You're making my father's house a den of robbers when it was meant to be a house of prayer." So, um, in that sense, it's still seen by Christ as the 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 place of worship in that Old Testament context, right? Of which the first, you know, the Gospels are still said in that Old Testament right. dispensation or context. And so, uh, oh, I cut you off. You were going into Herod's temple. Yeah. So Herod, Herod, then he takes Zerubbabel's temple and essentially remodels it. But the remodeling is so massive that I consider it the third temple. Most mm-hmm. most theologians would say they call that the second temple because it's basically Zerubbabel's temple continued on, but it's not even close. There's mm-hmm. not a, it pales in comparison compared to what. Herod built. I mean, it, he built what was, it, it was bigger than Solomon's temple. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was just this massive edifice, because that's what Herod did. He was, a, he was a builder. He was an architect. And that was kind of like, instead of building a statue to himself, he built monuments, basically, with his fingerprints on them. And those were kind of his, his, his pride and his way of, of leaving his et- legacy. And in some ways, it worked, because some of the greatest wonders of the world he built. And so, and the, his temple, the Herod's temple was one of those, uh, which again is fascinating to me because um, the way in which the pagan, the paganized version of Judaism, which is what, which is what we see in the gospels. It's just a paganized, idolatrous, man-centered system of worship. And, and when you couple that, that idolatrous worship system with the fact that you've got a pagan, basically, an Idomean king, Herod, who was out for himself and his own glory building the temple. It's like, of course, right? right. Like, you know, it, it, it just always fascinated me how the f- scribes and Pharisees never, like, they, they didn't like Herod, and yet they were happy for Herod to build their temple. Yeah. Right? That is that is kind of weird. It's always it's yeah. always made me scratch my head and go. They should have been they should have been adamantly like we don't want your help, mm. you know. Now in some ways they couldn't help it because he was he was in partnership with the. I mean he was raised to that level. The, mm-hmm. the, the people didn't identify him as king. The Romans did, and the only reason they did that was because he was a puppet king to kind of keep control of Jerusalem, right? And that, and the and the region. Because they knew that he had a better understanding of the people and the culture, even though he wasn't fully Jewish in that sense. He was Edomian. He was um, 
he was an Edomite on, on many levels. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but anyway, um, so I have always found that fascinating and, and, uh, and even contextually, even to our day and age in the church and our connections with government sometimes. And now, you know, pontificating in areas I probably shouldn't, but it is fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 Well, one thing that, um, well, one question that I had was you, you spoke when you were talking about specifically the temples, um, one, two, and three, the third temple, um, taking you back or actually moving you forward a little bit in Mark, uh, when, the uh, the earthquake happened when Christ was on the cross. Yeah, and the uh, veil was torn top to bottom. Yeah, um, is that that is when the whole sacrificial uh, practice kind of ended? No, when, no, 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 no. Obviously, because when you read through the Book of Acts, they're continuing to sacrifice. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Paul's Paul offers sacrifice for for uh, Timothy has him circumcised. I mean, the 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 Jewish system continued. You know, I would have liked to have seen how they sewed the curtain back up. That would have been fascinating. Right? Yeah. Imagine that, calling the seamstress in and say, hey, can Because obviously, it, yeah, was, it was thick, right? Oh, right. my goodness. Yeah, you couldn't sew that thing back mm -hmm. up the way that was designed and the way God designed it. And again, top to bottom, how does that happen? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> just so anyway, obviously it happened because God's own hands did it. And again, it was a, it was demonstrating that the way to God is now open through Christ, right? There is there is no there is no system that's needed to get to God. It's Christ. He fulfills the law. Mm -hmm. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Right. He is the ultimate high priest. He is the ultimate levite. He is the ultimate sacrifice. It's all through him and that obviously that's all the old testament pointed to him as the fulfillment, and he came, and that's what he said. I didn't come to abolish the law, do away with it. The law is good. It points us to God. I just came to fulfill it, because no man can fulfill the law. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes you right before God, right, is is fulfilling his law, but no one can do it, and therefore I'll do it in your stead. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's what the rending of the temp of the of the veil shows, that yes, now you can access. You can come into the Holy of Holies, anyone, not just the high priest once a year, but anyone, if you come in by and through the one high priest, which is Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So that's, from God's vantage point, yeah, that's when then it was done. It was finished. But obviously from the Jewish vantage point, it continued by way of a historical cultural reality. And that's where Acts 15 becomes a kind of a big, big issue um, with the first uh, false teaching or the first ecumenical council, if you will, where, th where you have the apostles and the churches and they're meeting because you have the first false teaching, which is an addendum to the gospel that they had to add. They had to continue. They had to convert to Judaism and accept Christ. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, not at all. Not mm -hmm. at all. And so, so yeah, so no, that continued, but it ended when the temple ended. So in AD 70, that's when there, are, there were no more sacrifices gotcha. in the... In the in the purest, fullest sense, mm -hmm. yeah. There was a there was a reconstitution that tried, and then it and then there was a, a kind of a regathering historically, but it it didn't last. And then you had the second Jewish revolt, which happens in about one thirty five 
AD and then that that, that fully decimates it and it never reestablishes again. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, what's known as the Bar Kaaba revolt, the Jewish revolt second time. And then the Romans come in again and wipe it out. And, and But that was, you know, minuscule compared to what happened in AD 70. Yeah, because that was another question I had because it was like I thought that Herod uh, was cool with Rome and, you know, he was that puppet king. Why is it that they well, He was dead. In? He was dead by that time. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, he, he died. He died. I forget the exact date, but he dies in... Uh, Oh, I can't remember the date now, but I feel like it's AD twenty something like that. He dies. Okay, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't far into it. Yeah, because yeah. you had. Uh, yeah. Well, wait. I'm so thinking he, of Rome. Yeah, I'm thinking so, of Roman uh, emperors. Uh, as, as like, yeah, you had Nero and all. Oh, that Oh yeah, stuff. no. That the but 60s. then, but then his kingdom right gets gets divided into four separate kingdoms, and that's where right. you get the different Herods. The Herod, different Herods. Yeah, Herod yeah, Antipas, mm-hmm. and oh, yeah, and so, and that's yeah. So, but. The one who builds the temple is Herod the Great, who tried to right. kill Christ right. at his birth. And, well, yeah. yeah, tried to kill Christ, yeah, from his birth with the, yeah. uh, the Magi, the yeah. wise men. So, so when Christ goes and stands before Herod, he's not standing before Herod the Great, who built the temple. He's standing before, you know, and again, this is where the line of Herod is so immoral and wicked, it's hard to, it's hard to keep it all straight because you had incestuous relationship. It was a mm-hmm. mess. So he's standing before basically one of his sons, but he's technically not his full son, and it gets really wonky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's where it gets confusing because there's a lot of Herods, it's but like they're his nephew or something. Yes, his, but his, his, yeah. his son few. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, his yeah. Son so, and nephew. Yep. But okay, so but why did they come in then to? Uh, it was uh, what was the guy's name that came in? Uh, to destroy and Titus. Titus. Yeah. He came in to destroy. Yep. Uh, yeah. The temple. Right. Yeah, because because the Jews were getting more and more antagonistic towards the Romans and the Roman rule, right? And they didn't like being under the thumb of, mm. of the Romans, right? The Romans occupied Jerusalem. They occupied the whole Jewish territory. They were the leaders, right? They were the—it was run by the Romans, but they let the Jews— they let the Jews stay and continue their their worship as long as they paid their temple tax, as long as they worshiped Caesar and called Caesar Lord, they could do their own thing. And as long as they didn't create uh, chaos, didn't create disruptions, didn't create anarchy, didn't create anti-governmental sentiment, then the Romans would leave them alone. And to help with that, that's where they, they installed these puppet kings or these puppet governors they would put them in, and that's what when Herod the Great dies, and he divides his kingdom is divided up into separate regions, and that's where you get Herod Antipas and different Herods, and they're given these specific regions to rule, ultimately under Roman rule. So it was the Romans who are ultimately controlling and saying, "No, we don't, we don't want you there. We want him there because he'll do a better job in gaining getting our taxes." That's what it was all about. It was all about money and peace, keeping the peace, and um, so. Yeah, but what was happening was the the Jews were becoming more and more antagonistic towards Roman rule, and then you also had Her- uh, Nero, Nero who who was dead by that time. But before that, he was he hated the Jews in his in the latter part of his reign, and he was beginning to um, blame the Jews and the Christians. And then you had the Christians and the Jews who were who were historically going at each other, mm-hmm. and so. You had a very tumultuous 
tension-filled time. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, Nero dies, and then there's unrest, and that just sets the stage for for what went on. Yeah. Okay. Now, backing all the way back to when Jesus was on earth, now I understand fully why the disciples were wanting the kingdom of God to be right then and there. Oh, yeah, wait till yeah. Sunday. So okay. Sunday, what I'm going to do is show you, again, what I said this Sunday, which I think is, if you're going to get your eschatology right, you especially Mark the Olivet Discourse, you have to understand, which most people don't, mm-hmm. but you have to understand that they had a view that the that the kingdom of God was happening immediately. Mm. That was their thought. They were looking for it now. They were expecting it now. And there are good reasons for why they thought that, mm-hmm. because that's what the Old Testament showed and right. taught. And, I'll, and I'm going to show that this coming Sunday. Yeah. So, um, yes, yes. And then, obviously, one of the reasons they wanted it now wasn't so much what the Old Testament taught, though I know they believed that, and, and I'll explain that. But what they really wanted was to be out from Roman oppression. Mm-hmm. And the, and the Messiah prophesied, predicted by the Old Testament prophets, would free them from Roman, from all oppression. Mm-hmm. So that's what they saw. So there's their Messiah, Christ. Here's the Roman oppressor. And it's like, here we go. We're about ready to be set free. It's time, right? And so you can see their desperation to be freed from Roman oppression, their identification of Christ as the Messiah it just brought together this immediate tendency. That's why Peter says, when Christ says, no, I'm going to die, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be handed you know, over to wicked men. And Peter's like, what are you talking about? Forbid it, Lord, no way. There's no death here. There's no, you're the Messiah. It's time to, to bring devastation to our enemies. It's time to put them under your feet. And for you, that's, yeah, they did not understand that there would be a gap. There would be a pause. There would be a period of time between his death and resurrection and the establishment of his kingdom. Mm. They saw them almost happening immediately. And uh, that's what essentially Mark 13 is. Christ is like, yeah, it's not going to happen like you guys think. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be a long period of time. It's not yet. That's why he says, I love that. He said, all these things are happening, but it's not yet. And that should have made them go, huh, wait a minute, what's... Yeah, but they were just so ingrained. And I'll explain why. I'll show you in Scripture where you, when you read the Old Testament, it's it makes sense to take almost an immediate position because that's how prophets would speak. Even Christ is prophesying in Mark 13, and he's pulling together times and seasons as if they're one, which is consistent in, in prophecy where he's jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop rather than walking down the mountain across the valley and back up the other side by which you see all the trees. He's just skipping. He's standing on one mountaintop and he's showing you the next one and he's showing you the next one and he's showing you the next one as if they all look the same when you're standing on a mountaintop. Mm. But what you can't see is all the valleys, Mm -hmm. all the times that come in between. And that's, that is very common in, Bible prophecy. And so if you don't understand that you have these epochs, these epics of time between these, then you then you do what's called condensed. You condense the prophecy to where it's as if it's one 
sequential event, Mm -hmm. but in reality, it's not. Now, I'll give you a prime example of this, and this will come up on Sunday, but there's so many examples. But you take Isaiah 9. Take Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, right? Mm -hmm. Two verses right there. Famous Mm -hmm. verses we all know. Could Mm -hmm. quote them like that, right? Mm -hmm. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given, Mm -hmm. okay? Well, we know what that's talking about. Mm -hmm. It's talking about what? The birth of Christ, Mm -hmm. right? The, the, The incarnation of the divine Son of God who is also human, right? For unto us a child is born. That's humanity. For unto us a son is given. That's his deity, right? We see that. Well, what's the next verse? There's his incarnation, verse 7. The government should be upon his shoulders. That's his kingdom, right? The prophesied kingdom. His government shall be on his shoulders, everlasting Father, Prince Mm -hmm. of Peace, of and it goes on, of which there will be no end to his rule. <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, it's gonna, he's gonna come, he's gonna be born, his kingdom. So you can see where it's like it makes sense. Baby to a king in half of a verse. Yeah, yeah, it's all together. So you can see reading that, and that's why Zechariah, when when the angel comes and says, "Hey, your son, you're gonna have a son." And he's going to be the he's going to be essentially the Elijah before the Messiah. He's going to be the voice crying in the wilderness. And as Zechariah comes out, and what does he talk about first? The Messiah. He talks about being freed from oppression rule, from the Roman rule and oppression, because he knows mm-hmm. that's their hope. Because they were seeing the everlasting kingdom, they were seeing that coming. So you can start to understand that, but they didn't get that they were jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop and skipping over a massive amount of time in between. And obviously, providentially, a lot of things, events, sovereignly, that needed to happen. And as we'll see, what Paul calls a mystery. Again, this is where you got to take Scripture as a whole. And then what the Old Testament didn't speak clearly, it does speak of it, but not in a, not in a uh, complete sense. But the New Testament comes in, and there was the time of the Gentiles, right? There was a time of the Gentiles, which would be Gentile rule, and the Old Testament mentions this, especially the book of Daniel. But then in that time of the Gentiles, Christ is what? Building his church, mm-hmm. right? Which is distinct from Israel. And that's what Paul calls the mystery in the Old Testament. The mystery, not clearly revealed, but now is revealed. And now we see that God is bringing together Jew and Gentile in his church mm-hmm. in a period of time during this this era, of which God will use the church to make Israel jealous, which is what Paul talks about in Romans, which will be a provocation to actually eventually draw his people back to him as the Jews are jealous over the church. And and that's where he talks about the grafting in and the cutting out and all of that. And so you start to see how all this goes together. It is It is fascinating how all this goes together. And yeah. You know, uh, the distractions that you mentioned with the disciples, I do realize that those are the distractions that I am also distracted by. All of us. All of us. And and it's it's more or less this thing of, one, this preconceived notions of, one, how we think it should go. Like, I I think our plan, I think my plan is going to work better than than how God has (laughs) planned it out. You know, because it's like, well, mine and mine moves a lot quicker. Yes. It moves a lot quicker. It's going to be for my advantage. Yep. Um, And then all of the thing, all the things that are happening, you know, God wrote it down. But yeah, I I can kind of see where this is going. It's like, no, you you don't. You have no idea. Do you remember one of the, do you remember what I said early on about why we're given eschatology. 
the purpose of eschatology. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? Um, I wrote it down. Yeah. I know that much. Um, but one of the purposes. Uh, I, think I gave four. Well, is it for hope? Okay. Yep. Holiness. Yep. Humility. Yep. And heedfulness. Yes. That's so a word that we don't really use a whole lot. Yes. Yeah, so hope, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Because in the world filled with hurt, in a world filled with hell, in a world filled with all kinds of hatred. You need to have hope if you're going to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confident expectation of a future fulfillment of a present promise. That's it. That's it. So he's promised to return. He's promised to right all wrongs. He's promised to reign as king, mm-hmm. even though right now it doesn't look like it, mm-hmm. especially with Uncle Joe, right? I mean, there's just a, <laughs> there's just a lot of there's just a lot going on. He's dipping in necromancy now. You yeah, see that? There's, there's a lot of things Uncle Joe's <laughs> dipping in, but we'll leave that alone. But Ooh. but you know, I mean, you can look at that and get very discouraged, yeah. and many have, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, there is a sense in which. We are saddened when we see, you know, from the from from a political standpoint, half of our government, i.e., half of the political parties of our system, our two-party system, is built upon slaughtering babies. Mm-hmm. That should make you very discouraged, yeah, very sad. Definitely. Yeah, and uh, but at the same time, we have hope. We have hope because we know where those come, those things come from. We know why they're happening, and we know where the answer is. And it's not in. And the answer is not in litigation. It's not in politics. Yeah. It's in gospel proclamation. So we get that. So it's eschatology really grounds us in hope when when hell has come to earth, mm-hmm. right? Huge. And then obviously holiness. I mean, that's really what what eschatology is all about: hope and holiness. And that's what Peter says so clearly in Second Peter. I mean, he literally uses those words. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what eschatology is really all about. Ethical eschatology. Ethical eschatology, where Mm -hmm. it changes the way you live, Mm -hmm. right? It changes the way you look at the world in hope, and it changes the way you live in the world in holiness. Mm -hmm. And eschatology is is in large part what is supposed to drive you in that. And you can see that in 1 Peter, when he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted and slaughtered unjustly, and he starts with eschatology when he talks about focusing their eyes on the fact of the Lord's return before he calls them to be holy. He tells them to cause them to be hopeful. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Mm-hmm. Go there. Remember his return. Remember then what he's done. And now go and be holy as I am holy and live holy lives amidst an unholy world. And so that's it. But then there's also this reality that you are, you are tapping on, and that's what provoked my thought here humility and that's where i think eschatology rightfully understood shouldn't drive us to arrogance date setting or even flippant responses it should drive us to what you said humble acknowledgement that we don't know Mm -hmm. there's so much about this we don't know we're able to know what he's revealed we're able to know what the scripture says that's why it's given to us Mm -hmm. But there's still a lot there that we can't figure out all the nuances. Remember what I just said about the mountaintops. Just as Israel had to look across mountaintops, we're looking across mountaintops. Now, we can look better than they looked because we have the full revelation of Scripture. They didn't have that, Mm -hmm. right? We do. So we can look back now where they couldn't and say, ah, they were looking across mountaintops. Mm -hmm. We now know there's mountaintops here. So we better be careful that we don't get all our charts and and stuff in a row to where there's no longer any mountaintops. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we we even even in a futuristic camp like I'm 
uh, I'm part of, that you just got to be really careful that you don't fall into an arrogant camp and fail to realize that there is still much mystery Mm -hmm. in the things to come, of which Christ says, no one knows the time or the hour. No one knows how how this, you know, the day and of which all of this is going to come about. There's still a lot of mystery here that we need to uh, hold loosely. Because again, it's not about figuring all of that out. It's about having the hope of his return, having holiness because of his redemption that has been brought to us, and having a humility that says, I hold my eschatology in the right place of what it's supposed to drive me to, and then I go and live my life to the glory of God for the proclamation of Christ, the evangelism of the lost. And then heedfulness is huge, and that is looking to his return, knowing that I'm accountable knowing that I am accountable, that he is going to come back, and I am going to have to give an account for every idle word, every every dollar, every day, every minute. As a believer, I've been bought with a price. I'm a slave. I, I am owned by him, and therefore I must give an account. Yeah. And that's what we see in the Scripture. That's why when he teaches, and go over to Matthew, Matthew's account of the of the Olivet Discourse, and what does he do? He tells parables about the talents. Mm -hmm. About what? Him returning and giving account. And so that is the application. That's why at the end of the Olivet Discourse in Mark, he says it over and over again, stay awake, be alert, don't grow lazy, don't grow um, uh, culturally uh, ingrained and engrossed. Don't get involved in civilian affairs. Stay focused on me. Stay focused on proclaiming my gospel and doing my work as you spread the the message of the kingdom. And when you return, you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But you got to be heedful because there's false teachers. Yeah. And there's false gospels. And there's obviously many distractions. Yeah. Can you... Um this is it's kind of like we're, we're getting towards the end. Can you give us uh, the gospel? And I want you to do it in a way that would be, uh, I know this is, this may not be the easiest thing to do yeah. for you. Yeah. But like <laughs> if I had, if you had, you know, three minutes or yeah. two minutes left and, yeah. you know, in, in an interaction with someone, Yep. you know, like a quick, like, Look, this is what this is what you need to understand about the end or your life. Yeah. How would how would you do that? Yeah, I would I would uh obviously I I would ask some questions and then based upon some of their questions I would steer to certain scriptures, but those questions would be driven a, a, around this reality that they have been given life by God. Mm-hmm. They exist because God, because God is good, because God is gracious, because God is holy. He is the great creator, and that's why they have life and breath. I would, I would explain to them the breath they just took was a gift from God. They didn't generate it themselves. God graced them with the ability. He made their lungs to function and their heart to beat and their body to be held together by the cells that, it, that it's holding together now. He did all of that. That's his work, and therefore they owe him allegiance. They owe him gratitude and thanks. And not only does because of how he made them, but more importantly, why he made them. He made them to worship him and serve him. And this is what the Bible teaches. And this is what we know in our hearts. We know this to be true. The law of God was written on our hearts. So I would start there and explain to them who God is as the ultimate sovereign creator who is good and just and holy. And the reality that we have been made by him and for him. But the sad reality is all of us have turned away from him. 
all of us have turned to ourselves. We no longer, we don't live for him in our days, meaning we don't use our breath, we don't use our abilities, we don't use our finances, of which God has given us those, the ability to make money. We use all of the things we have in life we use for ourselves, Whether we want to admit it or not, we know it to be true. We try to better ourselves, we try to boist, we try to build ourselves up so that we can look better, be better, live better, and I'm not saying better ourselves for the uh, sake of not living in the slums. I'm talking about pride and arrogance so we're recognized, right? That's what we do. We live for the glory of self. It's called vainglory rather than God's glory. The Bible calls that sin. We have rebelled. God says, live for me, do what I tell you to do, serve me, obey me, and we say, no, we'll live for ourselves, we'll obey ourselves, we'll serve ourselves, and if it's good for us, if it's advantageous i.e. for my glory, for my, for my vanity, for my pleasure, then I'll obey you. Mm. That's how we live. The Bible calls that rebellion. Yeah. That's called sin. That's what the Bible means when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? The Bible is emphatic about that. Ecclesiastes 7.20, for there's not a righteous man upon the earth that sinneth not and doeth good. I mean, that's the reality of all of us. And so the sad thing is that God is not only good, and and gracious and merciful and holy he's also just meaning he always does what is right and therefore he is going to judge as he should all who have rebelled against him well we all we already know that's all that's everyone because we've all done that so Acts 17 is where i would eventually take somebody whether they're opening my Bible and showing it to them, or actually quoting it to them. And in Acts chapter 17, probably one of the greatest evangelistic passages in all the Bible, it says pretty much what I've said, that God in his mercy has made everyone, and every single person is made of one race. I try not to distract somebody with that in our day, but it does. He's made everybody from Adam. We all come from the same race because we all come from the same person, all for the same purpose to serve him, but we've all rebelled against him. And God has appointed a day, a day in time already. It's already affixed to the calendar. You can't change it. He will not change it. It is set. It is set in indelible ink. It will not be erased or changed when he will send back the judge of the earth. That judge is Christ. And he has the right to judge because he's died the death that is sufficient for anyone and everyone who will repent and turn to him. But there's coming a day when he will come to earth to judge everyone. And that's where God says, he gives mercy and grace. And it says he calls everyone on the planet to repent, repent of their sins, recognize the rebellion against him and turn away from that idolatrous, selfish life and return to living for him. And you do that by turning to him, by trusting Christ, what Christ has done, who Christ is as the sovereign son of God, trusting in his death, his burial, his resurrection as enough to please the Father's wrath, to please the Father's justice, to please the Father's requirements, and then live for him. That's the gospel, and that's what Acts 17 says, and that's why he commands everybody to repent, because there's a day coming when he will return, and when he returns, it's too late. It's too late, and then there'll be nothing but judgment that's left. But right now, we don't need to wait. We can, we can trust in the one who's already been judged on our behalf so that we can escape judgment in the future. That's Christ, and that's the call of the gospel. And that's where eschatology is so gospel-driven, mm-hmm. because at the, end of, at the end of all eschatology, it's this reality, be prepared.
Yeah. That's why he says at the end of Christ's sermon, stay awake, stay alert. It's all about being prepared. For the believer, be prepared so that you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, to use your time wisely. For the unbeliever, you better get prepared. I'm coming back to judge. And the only way you can be prepared is to repent and believe in me. Amen. Amen. That was uh, that was awesome. Well, thank you all for tuning in. Um, and uh, I do have a lot of good things that are coming up here in uh, the next couple of weeks slash months for you all uh, that you all will love, um, hopefully. Uh, if you don't, then I'm still going to do it anyway. Uh, but thank you all for listening. Thank you all for tuning in to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm here with uh, Matt White, my brother from another mother with a different color, but the same father. Thanks for tuning in to this. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment. If you have a question, please send them to the Truth Talks Podcast at gmail.com. Visit our Instagram and Twitter at the Truth Talks Podcast and visit our website at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Delighting in the Word that we might walk in the truth. A ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church. But don't miss it. So I haven't showed Matt the actual website where the, uh, the, uh, uh, just went out for a second. We got, all right, we back. Am I still here? What happened? There we go. All right. I haven't showed him the actual website for the shirts, but I want to show it to him and I want to get his his reaction real time. So that's what I'm going to do right now. So these are the shirts. So one, I don't know if you can see this. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. What's this? This this, this is actually, uh, I don't know if you know, but this is actually uh, a Carter Hogan design right here. Be watchful. Oh, I love it. That's a Carter Hogan design. Carter is he is an amazing artist. Yeah, that's for a his age. It's I'm excited to see what the Lord does with that. Look at him already. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, he's. It, I, I said, I uh, it was one time I was just kind of we, me and uh, you know, Ben and I were talking. His dad and we were talking. He's like, yeah, you know, was, and he showed me a photo of the, uh, the, a, a picture they drew. I was like, that is amazing. Yeah, I was like, well, let's think it through a little bit. Let's, you know, let's let's see what he can do. So, he came out with the design, and uh, he actually got a few uh, shirts of that. This is another one um, that uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. <laughs> T bones and taters. <laughs> yeah, I was I was wearing this shirt on Saturday. Not a lot of people yeah. said anything, but yeah, yeah T bones and taters. I, I had it. to I had to do that, and a lot of people were like, what's T bones and taters? I had a lady walk up to me. I was going to Costco. And she's like, is that the name of your restaurant? <laughs> I said, actually, no, it's not. It's actually the difference between uh, what people are able to actually receive. It's out of 1 Corinthians 3. <laughs> and it, and I just went into it. And she's like, oh. Yes. I'm like, yeah. It's it's the spiritual restaurant. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's the spiritual yeah. restaurant. And yeah. this is the one that I'm wearing uh, tomorrow. <laughs> it's actually Gymnazo. <laughs> Train yourself for godliness. And uh, um, and here's the thing about the all, everything. I got stickers as well. Oh, wow. So you can have stickers of, of every single thing. I actually did one for the gospel. So one of the, uh, one of the guy I did the gospel presentation for it. And, uh, so, um, this is just a few of them. I have wow. so many different ones, uh, that you can look at. Actually, I'm going to hit, uh, view all products. So T-Bones and Taters is one. 
Uh, let's see here. Is also, um, you see that? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but don't miss it. I, yeah, I had to put that on the on the shirt. So yeah, I I don't know how you would react to it, but oh, obviously it's not it's not that bad. But uh, this is one of my favorite ones as well. Yep. This is literally yep. coming out of Mark thirteen. Uh, be on guard, stay awake, and then um, and you can get a you know you can get a the T Bone and Taters uh, uh, apron as well. <laughs> So I think James Douglas is, right. is definitely going to go for that one. And this is the gospel, uh, yeah. you know, just just a very yep. simple uh, version of the gospel. I got this on a uh, you can get it on a poster board as well. You can put it in your home. Wow. Uh, I, I've actually switched it from one vendor to another, yes. which allows me to do that. You can get it on a coffee mug. I mean, it's all types of different things that you can do. And what I've tried to do is make it so that it is not priced, you know, yeah. overwhelmingly. It's just yeah. you know a, a really good price. Uh, for each thing, but obviously the more expensive, like one of them is like the one of the hoodies are like forty dollars. Yeah, but it's like the better quality hoodie. But you can also get one for you know a little less than that. So yep. if you wanted to, so you know, yeah. So I'm going to post this in the show notes. Um, and I I keep thinking about it. I probably should, probably should send it out in the in the weekly e, uh, so people can at least click on it to if they wanted to do something. Yeah. Uh, you know, wanted to get something, but yeah, Bill, uh, Bill Itzel got one for his birthday. Yep. Uh, it was unexpected. He just knew that he was getting something, but it was good to see it. So, you know, you, uh, Matt mentioned mine in the beginning of the podcast and then Bill Itzel, uh, is wearing it as well. So yeah. you are, you, you definitely know that they come in big sizes. It, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no doubt that they come in big sizes. So you'll be able to find your size. Um, and I made sure that that was the case. Uh, this, these are big men certified as well. like to call them. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> real men. Yeah. It, there you go. There you go. So, yeah. well, thank you all for tuning in and, uh, we will talk to you all hopefully soon. Take care.